Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. My mantra was people before profit. Hi, I'm Michael Casson. Welcome to Good Company, where I'll explore how marketing, media, entertainment, and tech are intersecting, transforming our lives and the way we do business at a breakneck speed. I'll be joined by some of the greatest business minds and strongest leaders who will share how they've built companies from the ground up or transformed them from the inside out. My bet is you'll pick up a lesson or two along the way. It's all good. It's a great pleasure to welcome a friend of nearly 30 years and one of the true icons in our industry, and I'm proud to say a fellow inductee to the Advertising Hall of Fame. We shared a wonderful night together two years ago. Bill Konigsberg. Bill, thank you for joining me today. Oh, Michael, it's so nice to, to be here virtually with you. And you know, if we were together, we would both give each other a huge hug. And, I, you know, that memory of uh, us being inducted into the Hall of Fame, you know, will go down as one of the nicest evenings that I think either of us have ever experienced. So it's great to be you know, here. It's rare when you get two bar mitzvahs in one lifetime, but <laughs> you and I did. So uh, there you go. Yes, we uh, did. Bill, let me start from the very beginning as the lyric goes. <laughs> 1989, you founded Horizon Media, and here we are, you know, 30 plus or minus years later, and you built a $10 billion powerhouse, the largest independent media agency, probably the largest independent agency, not just media agency in the world, through good old-fashioned hard work, determination, tenacity, and just all those things that make you Bill Konigsberg. When you look back, how do you feel? I mean, it's got to feel pretty good, buddy. You know what, Michael? That's interesting. It has been, as you know, an incredibly long journey. And I have a, an enormous rearview mirror. But I always had the mentality, like, never think you've arrived. Because if you feel you arrived and you start to become complacent, you're going to get run over. It's incredibly humbling to me, but I still do not feel that I've arrived anywhere, and there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, Bill, in that regard, I want to talk about the business. You know, one of the things that has advanced so rapidly in the last 11 months is e-commerce. It was supercharged by the pandemic. Those things which would have taken five years to set in, set in in five days or five weeks or five months. And, you know, the human condition, as I've said so often over the last year, uh, habituates quicker than we give credit to it for. And we've all got used to doing things a certain way. You know, e-commerce was new to some, old hat for many, but there's a whole generation now, I'm included in that, that doesn't think of doing it any other way now. In the specific area of e-commerce, what are you doing at Horizon to keep pace with what your clients need relative to optimizing in that space and really being their partner in making the cash register ring in the most direct way you've ever been able to? Yeah. So, Michael, that's a great question. And, you know, first, I kind of hark back to 30 years ago and I'm saying, what was e-commerce back then? And I guess it was the Sears Robot catalog that we used to get. (laughs) But, you know, you fast forward now 30 years later, and one of the things that I've always prided myself on is kind of seeing around corners. And I think that's why Horizon has been so successful. And about 18 months ago, pre-COVID, 
we launched Night Market. Uh, Night Market was a very high-end, sophisticated e-com consultancy to be able to bring that kind of thinking you know, to our clients. And we brought on Randy Browning, who, who came from Deloitte. He was in their e-com area to start to build out our practice. And then lo and behold, six, eight months later, COVID hit. And e-com was more important than ever before. And, you know, in reality, e-com today is being transacted every step along the funnel from linear TV to mid-funnel to lower funnel. So e-com is built into an entire channel planning's ecosystem as another slice of that pie. And through the growth of night market, It's integrated into everything that we do. You were early and you've got some of the biggest brands in what, you know, we use the acronym of DTC, but the direct-to-consumer brands. And I look at it through the lens of some of the entertainment companies, which now have their streaming wars going on. They need to be thinking in a subscriber acquisition way as opposed to just putting, excuse the expression, butts in seats on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday when they used to open movies. The mentality is different, but you were early in that space and you were early in the space of understanding that nuance around direct-to-consumer marketing. Can you chat a bit about that? The reality in today's world, and I don't care what category you're in, whether it's entertainment, auto, travel, CPG, retail, it's all direct-to-consumer because at the end of the day, we have data today that allows us to actually track attribution from exposure to sale. And, you know, every client is tracking that differently and every client is tracking the consumer journey and where we can intercept them and where we can make a transaction. So if a client today doesn't think that they are a direct-to-consumer play, they're not looking at the world the right place. Now, the distinction is that you have certain clients that are all about demand generation, but brand is important. You've got to build the brand at the same time. And you've got other clients where brand, they're brand led, but driving demand is equally as important. But the distinction is demand to brand and brand to demand. But both of those sides of the ledger have the need today to be able to optimize and track attribution in in real time to optimize in real time, and today with the ability with identity frameworks and to learn so much about any consumer out there and track them along the consumer journey, you know what's working, you know what's not working, and you can optimize it and change it on a daily basis. And I'll tell you, Michael, the data that's available today, and the issue is, listen, being a data-led company is a bit overused term. At the end of the day, it's how you use the data. And the insights that you derive from that data, which is going to separate the winners from the losers. But the data that we have available today to help us understand micro audience segments, how many of them we are reaching on a given day and being able to build reach against those individuals to affect these outcomes. It's just, it is remarkable. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited you know, about the business today. I'm more amped about the business today than what I was two or three years ago, believe it or not. I was scared two or three years ago in terms of the arms race and could we keep up 
And could we, you know, play in that pond? And we built out this blue platform over the last couple of years, which is our identity framework platform. I think it's leapfrog, you know, the Merkels and the Epsilons out there. And I'll say it, yeah, I think we've leapfrogged them. And the ability for us to understand so many different attributes and insights about consumers and how we use that data is the secret sauce to drive outcomes for our clients is more exciting than ever before. Absolutely. Bill, let me switch gears. You and I share a lot in common, you know, in addition to both personally, so many friends in common and industry associations. And we're both arguably pretty well known for being relationship guys. And as a result of that, and as a result of this past 11 months, the idea of face-to-face with our clients and our colleagues obviously hasn't occurred. What's your take on that? So I think, so first of all, I think, Michael, if anybody had told us, and it was about a year ago, that we were going to be in lockdown for more than a year plus, and we would have experienced the number of deaths that we have experienced and the number of illnesses around the world, I think we would have thought, come on, that's a doomsday scenario that would never, ever ever happened. I was taking bets in March that we'd be, you know, not April 15th, but saying by Memorial Day, come on, by Memorial yeah. Day, we'll be yeah. back in the swing. And here you we got are. It. Here's my perspective on all of that. So from a company perspective, we had our office open on a voluntary basis in September, and I closed it before Thanksgiving when the positivity rates in the city started to go up again. And in LA, we've, we've not reopened because as you know, where you are, Michael, you guys have had a pretty steady influx of the virus, and we've never gotten to a point where we could open up in LA. Exactly. So one, we're hopeful to reopen on a voluntary basis when the positivity rate, either in New York, LA, goes below 2%. Then we'll open up again because we feel pretty comfortable with the protocols that we have in place to do that. We also thought by July 1, we may be able to call people back to the office and say, it's time to come back. And now I have a different thinking of that, which revolves around when are we all going to be traveling again? And what I see happening right now is there is going to be this slow migration of comfort upward month by month by month by month. So as more of the general population starts to get vaccinated, and we start to reach a level where there is significant vaccination across the U.S. and in the rest of the world, and we certainly are able to see the data and see that the positivity rates are so much less than they've ever been, and more importantly, the severity of how the illness affects people is so much less than ever before, everybody's comfort level will start to be raised. So I see a a slow evolution of my employees coming back to the office over a much longer period of time, say over the next six to eight months. And I see the same thing, Michael, happening in the business world. That if in the US here, we have this under control and there are certain parts of Europe that are under control, travel and flying will become more frequently. And as people become more comfortable, things will pick up. So I don't see a gun ever going off. Okay, back to you know, it's a curve. That's yeah. yeah. And, and I actually see it as a slow curve. So, um, so Bill, you mentioned yep. your people. I heard a rumor that every day during this pandemic at around 5.30 p.m., I'm guessing New York time, EST, you send a note to your team. 
you've yeah. been communicating. You're a great communicator, but you're communicating even more kind of almost on a daily basis with your team at the end of the day. I hope that's true because if it is, yeah. it's extraordinary. <laughs> what are the other ways you're keeping everybody engaged and, and motivated when we don't have a water cooler, when we don't have that interaction? Yeah. So, Michael, let me talk about the Bill Daly for a second because that is our water cooler a moment. And when we went home back last March, there were three things that I was frightened about. One was people within my organization, or for that matter, anybody's organization, being inflicted with the virus and, and having catastrophic illnesses and what were going to happen to our friends in the industry and you know just all over the world. We didn't know the extent of where Corona was going then. The second, believe it or not, Michael, was survival. You know, I built the company up over 30 years and I thought, could it crash and burn in 30 days? As you know, because you were doing triage with lots of people that you represent at the same time. The economy was shut down. Clients didn't know if they were going to be in business. Relief was being asked for left and right. So the second was, were we going to survive as a company? And then the third, equally as important was, as you pointed out, my offices, and that was our culture and that was our heartbeat. How do I keep 2,700 people connected now working remotely in all these different places across the country? And I started with a Bill Daly right when we went home, just to kind of give everybody a, a pulse as to what we're thinking and what was going on in the company. And it was a simple, here's what's happening right now. I was giving the COVID count as to how many people in the company were coming down with COVID in the early days. And I ended it with an evening thought. And the evening thought was something of hope, something of inspiration, something that would inspire people, something that would make people think. And I did it the next day. And I did it the next day. And then I started to add shout outs from clients who we were moving mountains for and, and individuals within the organization who were moving mountains. And I started to receive hundreds of emails from employees thanking me for being so transparent in this communication. And I was receiving emails from employees' parents about my Bill Dailies. So I've continued it, yes, Michael, every single day, shout outs, things that are happening at the company, businesses that we've won, things that might not be going well, I point out in the Bill Dailies, things we need to keep our eye on, birthdays. I'm always showing wedding pictures and people who've had babies. And, and then it ends with that evening thought of inspiration. And yes, it goes out at 5.30 on the dot every single day. So people know it's coming and it's a way to bring us together. I knew I couldn't control the pandemic and the economic situation and the social injustice situation, but I went back to my roots as business is personal to give people the comfort that things are stable inside our company and it has worked. It's worked miracles. I was just going to interrupt to say when you said business is personal, Pactel did a great commercial back in like 1985 or 1986. Because the idea in the old days was when you had a home phone, you paid $14.27 a month for your base rate for your home telephone. A small percentage will remember what a toll call is. But the only yeah. thing you had above your base rate was a toll call. It was unlimited dialing except for a toll call out of your area. However, if you had a business phone, after a certain limited amount of calls, you were charged per call. So Pactel did a great commercial trying to get people to use their business phones. And this particular tagline, I think it was Footcone who did the ad back in those days, changed my career. And the tagline was, some of the best business calls are personal. That, right. 
tagline changed my career because yeah. I realized early on what you just said. Business is personal. You don't just talk to the client about business. You build a relationship. But that's how you built your business as well, Michael. And I know that because, you know, listen, <laughs> you're like me. You know, relationships mean everything and they're not superficial. You no. care about people and people know whether it's sincere or not. And it takes time, by the way, to build up that trust. And you know that and you've done that over, you know, many years like, like me. You know, the other thing, Michael, that I did early on in April, people were very worried about their jobs. And as you know, there were a lot of layoffs in the industry. And my mantra was people before profit, no terminations, no layoffs. We were going to take it on the chin. We were going to come out stronger for it. We're going to have a year that, you know, was going to be a write-off and made everybody feel comfortable that no jobs were at risk. We actually ended up having a very good year, but that's another story. But we ended up with a really good year. But the second ritual, Michael, is you probably also know this, for 30 years, every single one of my employees every single day receives an anniversary letter from me, handwritten with my little green pen. As you know, I always write in green, handwritten, say something. I couldn't do that during COVID. And when we're done with this podcast at 445, I have an anniversary call with 26 people who are celebrating their anniversary at the company today. We chat, we have a discussion, but that's business is personal. And it's interesting because the silver lining of COVID has been my bill daily and my anniversary calls that have actually brought me closer to the company than I've ever been based on what's taken place. And, and we do a survey, Michael, every single month. It's called an ECHO survey. It's about our employees' emotional connection to the company and to our ethos. And the interesting thing is our scores are higher today than they were pre-COVID. That's pretty cool. That matters, Bill. And we tried in our way to do the same thing. I'm not as meticulous as you on a daily basis, but yeah. we've got more town halls and more communication and more of that because that untethered feeling can be dangerous for business, not just for the personal psyche of your employees, which of course is the most important, you know, their personal well-being always above all, but also the interaction. Again, that feeling that you're drifting away from the pack is not always good in terms of productivity and all of that. So, you know, looking at it through number one lens of their good health and, and well-being, and then the collective good health and well-being as an organization, it's so important to maintain that. You know, I'll tell you something else, Michael. The dynamic of COVID that's changed the CEO role. And if the CEO doesn't realize this, then they're in trouble. That I think pre-COVID, a lot of CEOs felt that their employees were accountable to them. I kind of always felt I was accountable to my employees. But now during COVID, post-COVID, I believe that the dynamic has shifted where CEOs are accountable to employees. And employers are watching every move they make, how they behave, can they trust them, are they transparent, how do they communicate things. So that accountability of a CEO to an employee, the dynamic completely flipped. And by the way, not only is it important for brands, everyone talks about the need for brands to be authentic because everybody has a higher degree of bullshit detectors. And so if you're not authentic, people see right through it. That applies in spades to leadership. If we're not committed to the same things we're asking our team to be committed to, then something's wrong. And if we're not sensitive and trying to walk in their shoes, then we're not sensitive and we're not doing our job. 
Yeah, and the dynamic you just said, Michael, about brands, I tell CMOs this and CEOs this all the time. They don't own their brands anymore. The consumers own their brands. Absolutely. The consumers can tear those brands down in a second based on how those brands behave. And they need to understand that that dynamic has changed based on social media and the ability to tear down a brand if consumers don't like the way they're behaving. So, Bill, you know that Dennis Holt was the person who brought me into this business. And he's, he's famous in certain circles for having been really one of the pioneers of independent sure. media buying, maybe the pioneer. I learned a lot of good lessons from Dennis. One of them was when you have a friend that's got a big job, you speak to them once a week. When that same friend doesn't have that job, you speak to them twice a week. There's a strong message in that in terms of loyalty and human relation. The other one was, and this is dated, but it's a great lesson. If you had a choice of feet, facts, or phone, use your feet, get in front of the client. But yeah. those were two lessons to me that, again, shaped my career. And I know those apply to you as well. Absolutely. But, you know, Michael, on another page out of the playbook that you and I both share, because I know, Michael, that, that you treat your smallest client the same way you treat your largest client. and. This just happened a week ago, and you'll tell you a really quick story. One of my brand teams got an email from a very small client in our portfolio. They wanted to brief us on a, on a new campaign, and they wanted me on the call. So the brand lead first said, Bill, I really don't think you, you know, we got this covered. You don't need to be on the call. And then the senior person said, well, if you're going to be on the call, there's certainly no need for me to be on the call because it's, it's overkill. And I, I explained to both of them that it has nothing to do with overkill and it has nothing to do with needing all this strategic firepower on the call. It's about making the client feel important and that they have our attention. And no matter what their size, they're important to us. And, you know, that's another lesson learned for people. You know, a lot of people judge attention based on wallet. And that's, that's not a good philosophy because yeah, someone well, who's got a small wallet today could have a very big wallet tomorrow. Absolutely. One story, as MediaLink was building, people would say, oh, Michael, you're so busy. You're never going to have time. And I would look at a new client or an, an old client and say, no, 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 that's not true. I am going to commit 100% of my time to you. And they said, come on, that's crazy. What are you talking <laughs> right. about? I said, well, there's an asterisk there. The asterisk is you don't need me 100% of the time, but 100% of the time that you need me, I'll be, I'll there. be there. Yeah, I love that. You love don't it. need me 100% of the time, but 100% of the time you need I me, love that. I'll be there. Let me switch to something that we were both very active in last spring, getting into, into the details. You know, upfronts, new fronts, old fronts, in fronts. We've been through so many of those. And I know you've got lots of opinions on timing and marketplace. And you're so close to the center of the, the storm, if you will. Last year, we saw changes in how upfronts were going to happen, calendar year, broadcast year, all the detail that we kept going back and forth on. What's your estimate today, Bill, relative to what this year is going to look like? Yeah. Will we see an upfront? Will it be broadcast or calendar? We're not doing, you know, Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall and, and, yeah. and whatnot, I'm guessing, even in May. But what do you think? 
Yeah. So one is, you you know, Michael, you probably know the virtual presentations are already starting to be scheduled by the, the various groups. And I do think that the upfront is going to continue. And as you know, this past year, the upfront had no real timetable. There was really good cooperation between the media sellers and marketers in terms of them allowing flexibility and allowing them to get into the market when they were ready to get into the market. The reason why I think the upfront is going to continue is for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I am very concerned about the traditional scarcity of traditional linear ratings and where they're going. So the first part is for those marketers that need that, and listen, there's, a, there's still a time and a place for those impressions. But for those marketers that need that, they're going to become a bigger scarcity. And, you know, you do need to lock those up through all and, the... And Bill, you mean lock them up as, a, as an upfront buy versus a scatter buy? Yeah, because I don't think there's going to be much left in scatter <laughs> with traditional, traditional linear. Now, there's going to be a lot yeah. more inventory, a lot more inventory coming onto the market through OTT, through the AVOD platforms that are out there. I believe that some of the streaming services who have not been ad-supported will become some form of ad exposure. Might not be traditional, you know, 30-second TV spots, but I believe that there will be opportunity to lock up some exclusive positions with some of the key players down the road. I just think that money will drive that and the money will be available to do that. I think the consumers will not turn off because of that if it's done the right way. So locking up a lot of these premier positions and a lot of these premium content on some of these platforms are going to be critically important. I think the key of what the sellers need to do is understand the need for flexibility, not because I'm concerned that all of a sudden we're going to have a pandemic and things are going to get locked down again, but the need for flexibility because of the optimization capabilities that are out there today that you and I talked about at the beginning of this discussion, where you are gaining insights in real time every day in terms of what's working and you have to pivot on what's not working to what is working to make advertiser dollars work harder. So how that flexibility is built into an upfront deal is going to be critically important. And I believe the more you're able to commit upfront, the more flexibility you're going to be given to optimize on business outcomes. And that's going to be well, the key why I, why I think it's still needed. Yeah, Bill, you, you used in one thought the three words that I think have defined this conversation over the last year. Flexibility, uncertainty, and pivot. We've yeah. all had to pivot. Everyone has had to pivot. We have to, got to grant more flexibility to people because there is still uncertainty about what's going to happen. Those three words define from a client's perspective, from a publisher's perspective, what you need to be. Yes. And, and the other thing, Michael, that has changed, the days are over of where I am turning over you know, billions of dollars to media to get back X <coughs> number of impressions at X CPM. What I want to do is turn over X amount of money to drive X amount of business outcomes. And I have the data today to tell me on your platform what's working and what's not working. And for those impressions that are dead, I don't want them. For yeah. those impressions that are working, I want more of them. 
Absolutely. And I don't care where they are because I know whether they're working or not. That's the new paradigm for the future. And Bill, as with most things over the last 30 years, you're prescient and you've seen it and you've acted upon it with, yeah. with great speed. You know, look, I always try to sound erudite when I talk about my analogy between the year 1859 and any time in the future or the present. And the erudite nature of that comes from the fact that I did some research years ago and determined that two of the most famous books ever written were written in the year 1859 and both by gentlemen whose first names were Charles. <laughs> Charles Dickens wrote A Tale of Two Cities, the famous opening line of the best of times, the worst of times. I think that applies today. And the second Charles, who in 1859 wrote his famous tome called The Origin of the Species, Charles Darwin, he talked about the need to adapt and survive. So if you think of those two guys named Charles in 1859 and apply those two threads to 2021, best of times, worst of times, we can point to so many examples of that right now. And secondly, only those who adapt will survive. God knows if we were not adapting, we would not have you know, survived a business perspective. So you've embodied both of those. So Bill, I can't think of a better way to end than to put you in the, in the same category as Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin. <laughs> you're a good man. You're a good friend. You're a great father. You're a great husband. You're a great leader. You are light in our industry. And I'm proud to call you my friend. Well, Michael, thank you for having me. It's always a treat to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to uh, a big hug one of these days. I'm Michael Casson. Thanks for listening to Good Company. Good Company is a production of iHeartRadio. A special thanks to Lena Peterson, Chief Brand Officer and Managing Director of MediaLink, for her vision on Good Company. And to Jen Seeley, Vice President, Marketing Communications of MediaLink, for programming amazing talent and content. Good Company is edited by Jessica Kreinchich. 